When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 498th episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the funniest people in show business and has been for the past half century. He's a writer, actor, and variety specialist who has been nominated for 14 Emmys and two Tonys, winning one of each. In 1994, the New York Times described him as a comic chameleon. In 2018, Esquire called him a living legend, one of the last real utility players of comedy. And that same year, New York Magazine labeled him a comedy god, noting that he's carved out a singular career as a show business jack-of-all-trades and is the type of funny where talk show hosts introduce him as the funniest man alive, adding, it's a testament to his talent that he's attained pantheon status in the comedy world while never quite solely carrying one thing, blockbuster movie or hit sitcom or live special, that was a true mainstream success. Well, five years later, that caveat can be removed from the equation, as he is one of a trio of stars, along with longtime friend and collaborator Steve Martin and Gen Z queen Selena Gomez, who have made Hulu's Only Murders in the Building over the course of two seasons one of the most celebrated series on television. The man who on that show plays Oliver Putnam, a bankrupt Broadway producer now working with two neighbors to solve murders in their New York City apartment building, Martin Short. Over the course of our conversation from his home in Pacific Palisades, the 73-year-old Canadian and I discussed his lifelong passion for comedy, even in the face of tragedy. Indeed, between the ages of 12 and 20, he lost his oldest brother in a car crash, his mother to cancer, and his father to complications of a stroke. And 13 years ago, he lost his wife of 30 years to cancer. We talked about his roots in sketch comedy specifically at Second City and SCTV in Toronto and then at Saturday Night Live in New York prior to his move into movies and series television and his ultimate return to sketch on The Martin Short Show, most famously as Jiminy Glick. We delved into his special friendship with Steve Martin, with whom he made the films The Three Amigos in 1986, Father of the Bride in 1991, and Father of the Bride Part Two in 1995, and also toured extensively prior to Only Murders in the Building, and with whom he also hosted Saturday Night Live this season, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. All right, Marty, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to have you. And on this Great one, to be here. thank you, thank you. Always begin truly at the beginning. If you could share with our listeners, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was born and raised in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. And my father was the general sales manager of the Steel Company of Canada. And my mother was a classical violinist. And you had a bunch of siblings, right? Uh, youngest of five. Wow. Yeah. So in prepping for this, I, you know, I thought I knew a lot about you, but then I just learned so much uh, in the last week or so, including, you know, just this terribly tough period that I guess you had between the ages of 12 and 20, where uh, a number of your closest family members you lost. And there's an assumption, I know we had Stephen Colbert on this podcast, for instance, right. there's an assumption that this is what and for some people, it is true, I guess, that that kind of a terrible loss is what drives them towards, you know, laughing themselves or making somebody else laugh or whatever. 
However, I have read that that is a common misconception for you, right? This was going on even before. Yeah, no, I think that I think that the way you are raised and who you are and DNA makes you respond to certain tragedies in a glass half full way, some glass uh, totally empty way. And some people use those kind of things as, see, the reason I'm a, you know, fuck up is not because I'm not talented. It's because, look at the tragedies I went through. And for some, that is a valid thing. So you can't, you know, judge anyone, but it, it is fascinating. In my case, I grew up in a loose, funny, happy family. So when David died, our eldest brother in a car accident when I was 12, you know, I had these four other, or three other siblings. And, um, to this day. So, uh, you know, you handle it together and we, and there's humor involved, you know, even in the most tragic moments. And that's the way our family handled things. Very Irish Catholic. And even, I mean, uh, I guess that, do you think it actually was helpful in enduring these, these difficult things after, you know, that it, it was both I don't are, know. It's like, that's your normalcy. Right. That's my normalcy. You yeah. know, um, when I was uh, 13, my mother was given a couple of months to live and suddenly she lived for two and a half years. So my normalcy, when I think of her, is not being sick. Right. Uh, I remember when she died, a neighbor, I'm standing by the coffin and at the funeral home and a neighbor says to maybe my sister, she suffered for so long. And I went, what? No, she didn't. You're taking away my childhood. She didn't suffer. So it, it's, that's your normalcy. You have a sick pa parent who's now in remission. Hey, that's your normalcy. So having already been introduced to comedy, shown an interest in comedy before any of this, what what was your exposure to comedy, That that your initial exposure to comedy? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's trickled down in my family. My, you know, my brother, Michael, is won many awards as a writer, everything from SCTV to Schitt's Creek. Mm -hmm. My father was hilarious, really funny. I mean, when I would do Glick, I think, mm, you're channeling Chuck <laughs> a little bit. And uh, my brother Brian was funny. My sister Nora is hilarious. I'll go and spend the weekend with her this weekend in Palm Desert. You know, I think that that's where I learned because you're the youngest. And then you're coddled because everyone thinks you're so damn cute because you're the youngest. <laughs> and then, you know, in the days of just one television in your living room, you're watching at night what your parents watch. And uh, so suddenly I'm watching the Friday Night Jack Parr show and who's Oscar Levant? Who's Malcolm Mugridge? Peter Ustinov, you know, but I have to find, and I find these people charming and fascinating and I get a love of, that kind of sophisticated show business. And I guess, you know, somebody might assume you're primarily watching Canadian content, but in fact, I guess you're so close. No, no, no. Well, water. Hamilton is, you know, 40 miles east of Toronto and we're, I don't know, an hour and 15 from Buffalo. So our stations that we watched were ABC, CBS, and NBC through Buffalo. Right. Tonawanda, Cheektowaga. <laughs> so when you go off to university... I I was surprised to to read the initial inclination. It looks like was pre med, then sociology, ultimate, social work, yeah. social work, yeah. um, and yet throughout all of that, there was some involvement with acting, theater. Had that even begun before university, or was that something you got into? No, I I, I didn't think it was cool in high school at all. <laughs> I didn't do anything, uh, but in university. You know, so my first two years was natural sciences, and there were a lot of courses and science courses and tough. But I was also being drawn toward, you know, I was in How to Succeed. I had one line, the big musical that the, that McMaster put on once a year. And, um, and the next year I did it. And so I just started to become addicted every time there was a theater. And that was the problem. That's basically why I had to switch out of natural sciences. I needed to find courses that didn't take all my energy because right. I needed a lot for the stage. Right. So. Um, With an idea towards this is something I might be able to do professionally after school? No, 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 not remotely. N not, not that at all. 
Uh, it was just something I loved. But because I was in Canada and not in Manhattan, it seemed like a very unrealistic dream that you were watching something that might take place on Neptune, you know? <laughs> so it, there was no plan to come down to New York or anything. That just was through osmosis. So I guess just in a sign of what a small world it is, one of your, I don't know if it was a roommate or just a close friend in university was Eugene Levy? He was not a, he would become a roommate. He he was about three years, four years older. So um, I hired him to direct this musical because I was now the president of Proscenium. This is about year three. I've switched to social worker. I have more time. I'm just doing plays and we're doing the odd couple in the summer. And, and Eugene and I became great friends. And then he was the one who said, now I'm in fourth year university and he's in Toronto. He's, you know, a struggling actor and working on things, but not much. And he said, you know, you should, you, you have talent. You should come, you should give it a shot. So I did based on, I gave myself a year and, um, but it was at his urging. Now this, was it literally the very first thing that you went out for was Godspell? Yeah. And just correct me if any of this is wrong, but my understanding just... No, the first thing I went out was for a talking visa card. Okay. And I got that. <laughs> and then I got Godspell. Okay. So if any of this is wrong, please correct me. But basically, if I have it chronologically correct, 71 Godspell becomes this phenomenon off-Broadway. In New York. In New York. Next year... I guess throughout North America, they're going to try to do... Uh, well, no, the first sister company they did was going to be Toronto Okay. for three months. Then we go to Boston. Then we go to Chicago. And it was a year contract. So Okay, so it would be the, the, the one touring company starting in Toronto. Right, because remember, Godspell was... First of all, you know, Stephen Schwartz, who wrote it, who would then write everything in the world, was like 24. They were just kids. So this was off-Broadway in New York, Cherry Lane Theater, and it was a surprise hit. So now they were going to do um, this sister company. So you and I guess Eugene and maybe others you know with you, you go line up, there's thousands maybe of, peop of people? Well, these are the callbacks. These okay. are the callbacks. And it was held um, in the Sonic Temple and... I don't know how many people were called back. Let's say 300. Mm -hmm. But all their friends were in the... Because everyone wanted this show. Every actor wanted this show. And hair had just been a big, big thing at the Royal Alex Theater and, you know, big hits. And now that was ending. And so now the hair people, people were, you know, woo! You know, they were stars in Toronto already. And... uh and yeah, and so that was that. So I was at the callbacks, and I read, you, and Eugene got the callback too. Okay, so, and I read that your your thing that I guess helped secure it for you, uh, my funny Valentine. Is that what you're saying there? Well, I, no, I remember thinking when Gilda got up, we didn't know Gilda. Okay, and she was in bib overalls with sideways pigtails. And she sang this very zippity dude. She had zippity doo with right. great energy, and I thought. Well, that's the saddest thing I've ever seen. Oh, dear God. And then you could see Stephen Schwartz and John Michael Tabalak, who wrote the book, just jumping up, you're hired. And they just, and I thought, oh, well, gee, and I'm going to sing my bunny Valentine. I might have made a mistake. But it turned out um, I got it, and uh, they hired Paul Schaefer that day, and Eugene, and Gilda, and Victor Garber, and it was amazing. I mean, it really is, because that, that so many, Andrew, Andrew Martin. Martin, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I guess I wonder, because you were with them all for about a year, right? And this is now a production that clearly was a major moment for all of you guys. Um, I believe you and Gilda dated during that time. You did. Um, you know, but so many people who had, you know, went on to great careers. What what made this group click so much? I, I have no idea. I really don't. I mean, I think if you want to be objective to it, you'd say, well, Jesus, there's a lot of Talent. talented yeah. people. But I do remember, so Gilden and I were together off and on for a couple of years, and I remember one time the first person who got a job to go to New York was Paul Schaefer. He was going to play the magic show, another um, 
kind of keeping it in the family, Stephen Schwartz production. Mm-hmm. And I remember Gilda and I were in a kitchen sharing a phone. And she said, Paul, what are New York actors like? And Paul said, well, I don't know what to say other than uh, I know you're my friends. I think you guys are just as talented. <laughs> and we got off the phone thinking, oh, that's so sweet of him. Not believing it because right. it was that kind of, you know, insecurity of having this powerful sibling to the south of you. Well, so when your year with the production ended, I guess that's that's 70... Three. Three, which is the same year that Second City starts in Toronto. That's right. And many of your friends from Godspell immediately went out for that, right? But you, And got it. And got it. Why, you know, this is your crew. Why did you not join them immediately? You know, I don't know. I mean, I think obviously I was afraid of it. You know, I was considered the funny guy. And yet now this idea of being improvising funny, which is, of course, all that anyone does anyway in a car. Um, So I thought that I would, um, they wanted it so much, and I didn't want it like they did. And I thought, maybe you have to want it like they do. And you you were more interested in... I wanted to do musicals and plays and be an actor. So what was going on in those, basically from 73 to 77, and then what changes in 77 when you do now become part of this group in Second City? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, what what was remarkable, I I can't speak for Toronto now, but back then was it it was a smaller pond. But you got to do everything. You could do a radio commercial. Then you could do a part in a Shakespearean play for CBC. And then end the night by doing Second City. Or whatever play you were in. Harry's back in town, you know. (laughs) Uh, Cole Cuts, the music of Cole Porter. I mean, there was always a cabaret or something to do. So the level of experience as a Canadian actor I was getting was way more than an average American actor, certainly in Los Angeles, who just kind of sits and hopes the phone rings. (laughs) Uh, You weren't becoming a star or anything, but you were, it was like being in university. And so um, that's what I did for years, you know, just, and then I, and, but then at a certain point, SCTV started, and I just could see my friends going up here, and I was still da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So <laughs> that's when I decided, you know what, I do want to do Second City. At that point, by that point, you had already ended your relationship with Gilda and yes. met the woman who would become your Yes, wife. I was now with Nancy. Nancy, and who had been also an understudy. An understudy, and Godspell. Oh, all roads yeah. go to Godspell. Amazing. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, but I guess one of the things that, I think it was even on this podcast that Catherine O'Hara remembers was that when you joined Second City, there was, you know, for as funny as you would be out in front of an audience, you were very serious about studying even your own work, I guess, recording it, transcribing it, dissecting it. Absolutely. What was that about? Well, I think that was, I probably had more confidence. This is right at the beginning. Mm Mm-hmm. I probably had more confidence as a writer than as an improviser. So I wanted to be able to, I would take home the cassettes because they were recorded. I would transcribe if it was a scene that I thought was interesting and could get better. And then I would rewrite it. I'd type it out and now I have a copy. Then I'd rewrite, oh, what if I said that? So then you'd try it again that night. And that's how I would write. So even- I also felt like I was 27. Mm-hmm. You know, Catherine was 22 or something, and others were now starting this kind of odd show on global SCTV. And I just felt like I had to make up for lost time, you know, even though I was 27. And it's just interesting because I know when we'll, we'll come back around to this when we talk about just what a, what a star you are with, with late night appearances. But what I guess the, the thread connecting what we're talking about with Second City and that is that what what you can make look spur of the moment, totally relaxed, like you've come up with it, there is actually a lot of work that goes Well, I mean, in a weird way, one feeds the other. It, for example, if when I would go home and transcribe those early Second City scenes, and I'd look at them and I'd try to rewrite them. And and now you kind of, when you go out, you're gunning for bear a little bit. You, you feel a little confident, more confident. So suddenly you 
not only might try that line you wrote, but now your headspace is is now getting into the place of improv. Mm. You know, culminating in for me in in creating a character who was a hundred percent improvised, Jiminy Glick. So, um, so that was teaching me with you know training wheels how to improvise. Can we talk about a couple of the examples of characters who I think you created at Second City and then they lived on at SCTV and SNL and elsewhere. But I mean, I think it was at Second City, right? Where we first get Jackie Rogers Jr. No, Jackie was created in SCTV. SCTV. Okay. Yeah. How about it'd be Ed Grimley there? Ed Grimley was definitely created on stage. On stage. So just to remind anyone uh, who needs a reminder, completely mental uh, yes, Ed was a very enthusiastic person, I must say. Very excited to be in, <laughs> filled with life, found life exciting. Yes. For example, I always like this one line that Ed said where he, the phone rings and he goes to answer it and then he pauses and looks to the audience and says, gee, I love the phone. There's always such a sense of mystery. So everything about life exhilarated him. Well, and, and between, I must say, and a very decent guy and all of these, con they... Am I imagining that these are, is it almost like a, a play on a Canadian person, just a very polite, uh, these are things that I associate more with Canadians than I'm Yes, well, they, they were. That was, listen, I was in Toronto. Yeah, right. Um, I was kind of doing a little bit of my brother-in-law, Ralph. I was doing uh, a guy I'd known in school. You know, you, you combine them. Right. And, and, uh, right and the hair was only to make Peter Aykroyd laugh. <laughs> we were doing a scene called Sexist. Right. And it was a scene that uh, John Candy had done in the show Wizard of Ossington. It was called Ossington's right. a Street in Toronto. And so John left and I replaced John on stage. That's how I got him. And uh, I was doing the scene Sexist that John had done about kind of a low-life guy and this very accomplished woman and the manager of the company just can't decide between the two. And she gets indignant and she storms off. And, and it's one of those scenes. And I decided to do it as Ed Grimley. I was kind of like talking like that. And, and uh, then I would grease my hair a little bit, wear the pants high. And then Peter Ackroyd's, Danny's brother, said, you know, that hair is getting taller every night. So as a joke, I put it in a point. Right. And then the audience laughed. I thought, well, isn't that, isn't that what I'm trying to accomplish here? So that Ed's, Ed's hair was born, you know. That's great. So you leave Second City in 78, but I don't think you start at SCTV for another... No, no, no. Then I did a series in 79 for James L. Brooks right. called The Associates. Associates. And that um, was on and off in one year. And then the next year I did I'm a Big Girl Now for ABC, Danny Thomas, <laughs> Sherry North, Diana Canova. Right. And then the next year I joined SCTV. So th those other programs that you just mentioned had been your introduction to, first of all, I guess, television. Secondly, American Oh, absolutely. Work. And James Brooks was the hottest guy in television. Sure. He'd just done all the Mary Tyler Moore, Phyllis Rota shows. He had a, two massive deals at Paramount to develop series. The first one was Taxi. Yeah. And the second one was The Associates. And he had um, 13 on the air, no pilot. That was his wow. deal. You know. Wow. And uh, it was amazing. And the shows were great. We just were, you know, in bad position. And I don't know. It didn't click. But they were very well written. And you were just as drawn to screen acting as you had been to stage acting up to that point? Well, again, in, in, in Toronto, I'd done it all. You know, you you didn't... It wasn't like, I'm a stage actor, I'm a film actor. Right. You just say, do, do I bring a suit? Right. You know? <laughs> Uh, okay, so SCTV, which, as you said, was going up and running for a few years. Yeah, it was already hit when I yeah, joined. Hit when you yeah. joined in 82, right? Mm -hmm. The conceit is that these are shows for this low-rent station in Mellonville. Right. I guess in this case, just to, can we talk about this is overlapping with the beginning of SNL, uh, early years of SNL, right? These are concurrently finding their thing. Absolutely. Well, one has a budget and one doesn't. Yeah, well, that's yeah. the thing. Like, can we talk, because you would obviously soon after do SNL, but the main difference is what? That you actually have some time to, you pre-tape for SCTV, right? Well, first of all, by the time I joined SCTV, it was already a big hit. Right. So its budgets were great. And you know what I mean? That was all, 
Um, but the main difference was that I remember we were writing our last season for Cinemax and we were doing 18 shows and we would have a writing season of, you know, five weeks, six weeks, and then we'd start shooting and we'd keep writing. And the first two weeks, Eugene Levy couldn't, and he was a dominant writer, like the days of the week, the soap opera, he wrote every word. Where no one else, I mean, I just wrote stuff for me, right. you know. <laughs> but he didn't have an idea in his head. He just kind of, now, that was two weeks. Eugene had writer's block, and then it went away, and he made up for it. Hmm. On SNL, you've just missed two shows, hmm. you know. I mean, the the strange thing about SNL is that you can have a great show and feel like king of the castle. And then now it's Sunday and you go to a hip brunch and people say you were great and all oh, thanks. But by Sunday night, you're getting that thing in your stomach because you have to now meet Ringo Starr because you're a writer in the show and you don't have one idea in your head. <laughs> and early on when I was first doing it, when we were shooting pieces like, you know, um, synchronized swimming and stuff like Harry Shearer and I were doing it. And... I said to Harry, you know what I want? You know, when we start doing the live shows, this is what I want to do. I want to always hold back a piece, a piece I want my friends to see and tinker with it. Make sure it's really gives it that extra week of focus. And Harry looked at me and went, uh-huh. And then he put a piece of paper in the typewriter and typed up what I just said. <laughs> and he then put it behind him and he said, now, when you come in, on Tuesday night with not one idea in your head. I want to hear how that piece you're holding back for your friends is doing, you know? So that was S, you know, SNL. It's, it's more um, final exams every week. Did it make a difference to you that, as I understand it, there would never be an audience at S for, for SCTV, right? Not a live audience in the way that there is. No, we shot SCTV like a movie, right. And you that, go over, um, I once guested on Rested Development and Mitch Hurwitz yes. did a very similar thing where the cast would go over, look at a playback and you go, oh, okay, I see. I'm too big. Jason, you should be bigger. And then, okay, let's try it again. So it was just, that's how we did SCTV. So SCTV, just, to, just because it's another big guy in your repertoire, you mentioned that is where we get Jackie Rogers Jr., cross-eyed, white-haired, albino, That's right. lounge singer. Mm -hmm. uh, I read it one in one place. Was Mickey Rooney Jr. sort of an inspiration? Well, it was. I seen a pic. I, listen, it could have been <laughs> underdeveloped. But um, <laughs> to me, I wanted to do a piece because everyone was doing, you know, Bill Murray had the big lounge singer, and I always did a loungy kind of thing. But I thought, oh, well, that's passe. You can't do that anymore. What if I ha create a character who's killed? then it's not passe because I'm killing him. <laughs> and um, and then at the end, we needed his son to come in. So, I miss my dad. I hope you won't Thursdays at nine because it was now a special that had been shelved for 11 years since Jackie was died sh shooting it. But now they're going to air it. <laughs> and um, I saw a picture of, of, I guess, Mickey Rooney Jr. It was, yeah. And he just seemed like in this picture like an albino so i said well i'll make him an albino <laughs> and then about a month and a half later eugene levy had his character bobby bitman he said i want to do a piece with jackie rogers i said the albino he said no not the albino i want to work with the father i said well the father's dead we can't you have to work with the son well i don't want to work with the son the albino character no and then we ended up doing lots you know because <laughs> there was no choice right so SCTV, 82 to 84. In 84, you did two things that I think are pretty uncommon in the history of SNL, which is now, what, like over 50 years. Approaching. You joined on a one-year deal, and you left after that year. That's right. Why those two things? I know that at SNL, just to kind of set the scene for your answer, I think Eddie Murphy's just left, Right. Eddie had left midway through the season, and then now Joe Piscopo had left. Okay. And I think there was a real sense this show could be canceled. Mm -hmm. And, uh, like, back then they didn't even have a wig department. They just, it was 10 years old, but they still just rented each week, each show, you know. So um, they, they gave Billy Crystal 
Billy and I had the same management, Rollins and Jaffe. So they negotiated a very lucrative one-year contract for Billy and myself. And I don't know what Harry and Chris got paid, but I know that they also got a one-year contract because everyone was established. I mean, they had just that summer had Spinal Tap. It was the hippest, biggest film that everyone was talking about. And that was the summer. Now we're going into SNL. So the idea that, um, you know, there was apprehension by everyone's part. I mean, I still have the pro and con list of whether I should do it or not. Really? Yeah. What were the main considerations? Well, I appreciate it was SNL. And f- first of all, we just rented a house out here. We had a baby. And uh, I had just done two and a half years of a grueling schedule of SCTV. So I was kind of looking forward to being in California. I also thought, gee, I, I've developed a nice little uh, culty rep right now from SCTV. Do I want to destroy it by being on SNL? Is SNL funny? All those questions. And it was... I guess the year before you came, that was the Gene Dumanian year, and then the year you're there is Dick Ebersol. Is that right? So, had Lauren was not even a part. No, of No, no, Lauren was not part of it. He that's the eighty to eighty five era yeah. that he was not there. So, only because obviously you and he then connect after your SNL run. But right. I mean, that was just totally unrelated. Well, I had met Lauren backstage at Godspell that early. Yeah, yeah. He was, you know, he was a TV star. Oh, right. The uh, Hart and Lorne Terrific Hour on CBC. And he was married at that time to one of the biggest Canadian stars ever, Frank Schuster of Wayne and Schuster. That was his first wife, Rosie. Wow. So, um, but no, I I, I never really worked with Lorne until we did Three Amigos. So I guess before Three Amigos, though, so 84 is when you join and leave SNL. Why only the year? If, if it was it your decision, you just didn't want to do it anymore? You know, it was, um, it was always a year contract because no one knew what's happening in the show and they didn't want me to be tied up. And that was the lure to get us to do it one year. I, in, re, in retrospect, I wish I hadn't had it because what I did is I treated every show like it was a special, mm-hmm. you know. And I wish I'd known I was going to be there five years. I would have relaxed, you know. Was there one character or or show that you're proudest of from that year you were there? You know, I I don't tend to watch things. Um, In fact, I remember Davey Wilson was the director and he was the original director. And I remember on the Monday, I went to the office to get a a VHS in those days of the show. And Davey said, what are you doing? I said, well, I want to look at the show. He said, no, no, don't look at it. (laughs) It happened. It went. You'll only look for faults. Let it go. But when I th- look back on that first show, and it had strong pieces in it all over the place. It was a really strong show. And I remember the dress was so bad <laughs> that my wife came and I said, this is a disaster. And she was devastated. Yeah. You know, we'd moved down. We hadn't, I said, I'm telling you, they should show an old show. It's bad. <laughs> and then she was so pissed off afterwards because it was a triumph. And she went, why would you? I said, I'm telling you. Because I didn't realize what could happen between dress and I was going to ask, how do you explain that? Because I've often, you know, even in the Tom Shales, Jim Miller book about SNL, that seems to be a recurring thing where one has nothing to do with the other. Well, you know, in, in comedy, if you have a bad joke, it affects the next three jokes. So a piece that doesn't work affects the next two pieces. Um, it affects the confidence of the cast. It... Um, or maybe that piece works great at three minutes, but unfortunately it's seven. Mm-hmm. So those things can change between dress and air and, and where you position things. And Interesting. Yeah. So coming out of SNL is really the beginning of your movie career. And I want to, can I just prompt you about a few of these yes. that, uh, you know, people really remember? I think, you know, Three Amigos, I didn't realize how, I, I didn't remember how abused you guys were for that movie in the immediate yeah. aftermath. It was pretty harsh. The yeah. um, So obviously you, Chevy Chase, and I think for the first time, Steve Martin, did it feel when you were making it that it was working or what, like why, how do you, were you taken aback by the, by the response to it in 86? Um, 
You know, I can't remember. I must have been taken aback. But I also, you know, I'm sure I'd been to a screening where I thought, oh, does that work? You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I, I'm not like, like that. Oh, laughing and laughing. I'm probably my own worst critic in that respect. Yes. There, there, I think there, there was just so much expectation from the three of us. They felt I was muted and Chevy was this and Steve was that. And, and then, of course, 10 years later, it's the cult comedy of the 80s. Is there any explanation for that? I do think that a lot of these things is, is box office. You know, if that film makes a gillion dollars, people right away are saying, it's special, right. you know. <laughs> and if it's a box office disappointment, they'll go, well, you see, because they were... You know, you can't straight jacket Marty. You know, those <laughs> those those phrases happen. All right. So the next year, eighty seven, uh, you're with Joe Dante for Inner Space, which another highly anticipated one. And it did end up winning for uh best visual effects at That's the right. Oscars, but I guess also at the time seen as a bit disappointing in the performance. Uh, yeah, they wanted to make more money. Yeah. What a shock. <laughs> yes. Eighty nine, Christopher Guest and uh, the Big Picture. Yes. Um, any memories of that one in particular? Uh, well, yeah, I just shot two days. I remember, and um, I had big welts on the side of my head because we were curling my hair and spraying it orange, <laughs> and then I wanted to look like I had had a bad facelift. Right. But Chris said afterwards, he said, "You know, what we should have done and never explained it was in one scene you have big bags." And the next scene, they're not there, and we never explain. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, okay, so then both 91 and then, of course, 95, the two Father of the Bride films, Frank Egelhofer, yes. mm -hmm. Wedding Planner Extraordinaire. The interesting thing about this one is that, from, from what I read, there were some concerns out of the gate that you're in a different movie than everybody else, right? Well, I, I think we all worried about it a little bit. And um, I remember the president of Disney, who we were on a flight, and he said, well, it looks like you're having fun out there, <laughs> which meant, I said, well, what does that mean? Because I knew him. And he said, well, you know, I mean, sometimes you say yes, and sometimes you say yeah. <laughs> I said, yeah, well, I think it's all effect. I think he's from somewhere, but whatever his accent. Right. It's like, you know, a movie star from New York randomly saying y'all. You know what I mean? It's all, you don't worry about it. <laughs> right. And, um, but we would do a lot of takes where it would be turned down, turned down, turned down, turned down. And remember one point Steve Martin said, well, I don't get it. Now I understand him perfectly. Because it was supposed to be that Steve couldn't understand them, but Diane and Kimberly could. Right. And that symbolized the alienation of his process in this development of a wedding. <laughs> all right. In between those two, Father of the Bride films was Clifford in 94. Uh -huh. I think it actually... We actually made it in 90. I was going to say, because yeah. this Orion bankruptcy. They went bankrupt, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, Dances with Wolves, and Silence of the Lambs, were those three always make sense together. Absolutely. <laughs> That's another one that, in a way, I feel like, like Three Amigos at the time maybe got crapped on, and then people came around on it. Well, because it was so bizarre. Anytime you do, you know, there's a line that Sondheim does in Sunday in the Park with George, all they ever like is repetition all they ever want is what they know so if you do something like we're a 40 year old guy is playing a 10 year old boy it's it's you're gonna you're gonna get the lovers and you're gonna get the haters right and that, here's what i know about yeah. the haters i wouldn't want to have dinner with them i'd be bored yes yeah and they're they're they found each other now on twitter so absolutely <laughs> okay mars attacks 96 this yes. is uh for tim burden very different or interesting filmmaker um any thoughts? I mean, just that's a, quite an ensemble that you're part of there. Oh, yeah. People were taking pictures of the chairs, I remember, because it was Rod Steiger and Piers Brosnan and Jack Nicholson. Right. And Michael Fox and me. It was hilarious. Oh, and, um, and um, well, Sarah Jessica Parker was in it. Sure. Everyone was in that movie. Pretty Glenn Close, of course, yes. were in the scenes I was in because I was the press secretary. Yes. <laughs> Jerry Ross. That's right. Um, and then just flash forwarding for, for a moment, because this is another just, I can't imagine too many other 
I don't think I can imagine anyone but you playing this for another very interesting filmmaker, Paul Thomas Anderson, the <laughs> basically what pedophile dentist yes. in Inherent Vice, uh-huh. a, a strange movie anyway, but Absolutely. this guy, you know, quite a character. And Paul was spectacular to work with. It was like, um, again, I was expecting because of his films an eccentric, you know, brooding or something. He was just like, he's like a... UCLA film student. Right. Okay, so what are we going to do? I mean, and he'd, we'd do eight takes where normally it would take two. Marty, get out of the car. Go ahead and say the line again. Do you want me to say it louder? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, just kind of hopefully stumbling on some magic. Right. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Back to the small screen. Uh, I want to talk about somebody who I think, you know, might be as closely associated with you as any of these characters. And that is Jiminy Glick, who I think we first see in the Martin Short show number two version. This. 99 to 2000. And then, of course, Primetime Glick, 2001 to 2003, the movie in 2004. Just to read a couple of quotes to remind people of how (laughs) special this guy was. New York Times wrote, quote, when the show is at its best, Martin Short is the funniest man on TV, close quote. And they say that the characters, quote, television's most inspired madman, close quote, and quote, the most unpredictable and hilariously uninhibited comic creation to hit TV since Bart Simpson was in diapers, close quote. Um just because he's so out of left field, I wondered where he came from. I had, in trying to find the answer to that myself, I came across an, a few obituaries for a guy, Skip E. Lowe, who died in 2014, mm-hmm. L.A. public access TV host, that claim he was the inspiration, but was he, in fact, the inspiration? Well, he was one of the inspirations. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, but in the subtle things, not his look, although what used to make me laugh hysterically about Skippy is that he would, they'd do like tan number three on him, very dark makeup. Right. But they'd never do his hands, so he put his <laughs> white hand up to his chin to listen. But he had that kind of glick intensity. But then there was, you know, a neighbor in our street when I was a kid whose voice kind of went up and down. So it was a little bit of that. There was a guy I worked with who was in production that I'd be in my office and I'd hear this for a different show and I'd hear him going, ha, 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 ha. And I think, okay, that I, that <laughs> has to be someone's laugh someday. Right. And then I, the look was created because I'd made a movie called Pure Luck and I was stung by a bee and then I swelled up. And um, I remember my wife saying on the set, I don't see you in there. And I wanted to create someone that no one would recognize me because... We had tried that going to, you know, farmer's market. and be, hey, hey, Mr. Short. And go, wait a second, I'm in two hours of makeup. Right. Nobody knows. But I'd done too much of that already. But Glick made me, I could go anywhere and no one knew it was me. I was going to say, I mean, unless I'm forgetting something, you with him and I think basically at the same time concurrently in the UK, Sasha Baron Cohen with Ali G and right. Bora, like, this was a new kind of comedy, basically, right? Where you're... In- well, Glicks was more practical. We, I had a talk show. Yeah. And I thought we could use Jiminy Glick as someone who could go to junkets and go to the Emmys. <laughs> and we now have, you know, Tom Hanks and Jack Lemmon on our show. We can promote it at the top of the show because they're sitting down with Jiminy. 
Did anyone who you interviewed not know in advance? Jack Lemon. And I, and, but it was the first time I'd ever done him. Really? And he came over and I said, what's Harry Cohen that Fox mean? And he went, well, no, not really. I mean, he was very kind to me. And I realized he was ask, answering sincerely. And I thought, oh, God, I don't want to, <laughs> we Lemon. won't use this because I don't want to make Jack look wow. like he's not in touch. I adore Jack Lemon. Sure. Was the, the challenge of playing this guy primarily just, it's such a, physical ordeal to become him or was it like was no 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 in fact the opposite you could flip out of a chair and be padded so that's why he could do great physical stunts in those chairs and no well you see again we edited so you were trying to find edge but not be mean right but i remember we would normally do an interview for about eight minutes, and then we'd take a break, and we'd say, no, anyone else? And the writers would come in. And I remember interviewing uh, Alec Baldwin, and I said, Alec, anything? That you... ask, me, well, ask me about women. All right. So then in the next segment, he, I keep bringing up Hillary Clinton when she's banging at your door at 3 in the morning, man. You know, it's all that stuff. <laughs> and then you edit it together, and it yeah. seems seamless. Was it immediate that you realized this guy was special was click would click with people or did you have to hear that from audiences i i think truthfully i i've never been terribly driven by what the audience says i just kind of i mean obviously if if it's supposed to get a laugh and it gets no laugh it's gone right. don't get me wrong <laughs> but I, I start with what would make me laugh right and then you hope you have a similar taste just briefly two other tv things uh before we get to the present, but Uncle Jack Dorso, who I didn't even put together at the time on Arrest Development, this is as in Jacked Torso, I think, right? Uh, he was, well, he was a bodybuilder, right? Yeah, I don't. It took me too long to realize that. But this is one episode, Arrest Development, and Esquire, just as one example of people responding, that you come in for maybe the whole thing is just a couple of minutes and they say the funniest two minutes of your life. And it really, I watched it again this morning just to be fresh. It's so physical, so creative. To be able to just jump into a show that's up and running and have a fully fleshed out character and make the most of just a short amount of time. Can we take that character as an example? Is that daunting, fun, scary? What is that? No, it wasn't scary. Um, because, again, I knew how they were working, that we would do a take, look at it. Oh, okay. But we kept adding stuff. Mitch kept adding stuff. And we had a bodybuilder, um, Dragon, who was and, – and he had muscles like this. Yeah. But at a certain point, it doesn't matter who's lifting you, you wear them out. Yeah. And he was so upset because he just couldn't lift me and he was burned out. And I kept saying, it's all our fault, you know, because I remember Mitch adding the thing about, um, to the nuts. Yes. And they put me down to Jason Bateman's crotch. <laughs> right. And I, bridge mix, I'm saying, against his crotch. <laughs> but, you know, where Jason is brilliant is that when you were, I remember we were doing a take, and as we had more to do, but in the middle of it, I just pretended to fall asleep and fell into his lap, back to his lap yeah. again. And he just went on with the scene and played it as if this old uncle had fallen. I mean, he's that good. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, every Will Arnett and the whole cast Great is group. spectacular. Last of these other examples, just the things to talk about, Leonard Winston in Damages. This oh, yes. This was a, a kind of a Bernie Madoff side, sidekick kind Absolutely. of guy. Absolutely. Um, that was actually, you know, in some ways, I think will be looked at as a, a turning point of a show for among other reasons that it was the beginning of the end. I think of this, there's lines between who are film actors, who are TV actors with Glenn Close and other people. It just, right. became, um, but just, well, you know, this Kessler brothers, they had a, a real belief that comic actors um, were more interesting to them than just if you were an actor. So, I mean, certainly if you're Lily Tomlin, for example, you're funny, but you're, acting that perfectly mm -hmm. and capturing something that's funny in life, but you're acting. Yeah. So that's, I remember when we first, sh the first scene we shot in Damages, it was Glenn Close 
And then I was, it was Lily, and I was her lawyer. And Glenn's saying, guys, this isn't fair. I can't look at these two and get through all this dialogue. And, um, but at one point, you know, we did a take, and one of the producers came up and said, Marty, um, can you not smile in this scene? Because when you smile, you're Martin Short. And I said, well, I am Martin Short. <laughs> and, and, you know, the worst human beings in the world smile. Oh, yeah. So... I'm going to smile. Yeah. And they then later said, I'm, we were wrong and we were just getting panicky, you know. Okay, so when actors do projects, and we've talked about many of them that, you know, film TV that you've done, they go on talk shows to promote them. And you have been described by the Los Angeles Times as, quote, the funniest talk show guest on the planet, close quote, by the New York Times as, quote, an almost perfect talk show guest, close quote. The New Yorker wrote that you have, quote, made several generations of hosts lean back in their chairs and laugh. He cracked up Carson, he cracked up Leno and Conan and Fallon, close quote. And Stephen Hunter of the Washington Post once wrote, forgive me, this is him saying, quote, if making bad movies gets short on Letterman, <laughs> then bad movies are okay by me. I'll even go see them just to sustain short on the talk show circuit, close quote. So what is the key to being such a effective talk show guest? I think you prepare. You prepare a lot. And again, some, you know, hosts would hit everything you prepared and some would hit some of it. So you're not only preparing yourself, but you're looping the, in the hosts about what you're Yeah, planning. I mean, you want, you'll, you'll say, I mean, I would send in many pages and in caps would be the host's question to me. Now, of course, the understanding that they would phrase it the way they want. Mm -hmm. But also, I would also, you know, I'd be on the phone with a, um, someone doing the producer's segment mm -hmm. of, of my appearance for an hour and a half. With Matt Roberts at Letterman, we would have dinner at Orso the night before <laughs> um, because we were always doing songs that Matt wrote. And so I, I think you just prepare, and then it gives you the confidence to come out. But I remember very early on thinking, I know what this is. This is you're trying to capture yourself really loose at a dinner party. <laughs> but, you, but you don't have the 40 minutes going in you have to just get there. So you have to do an impersonation of yourself really loose. <laughs> Is that, that sounds uh, easier said than done. I mean, I would imagine it's a, you are, have again, a short. Well, it's focused. You're kind of, I mean, but also I, I'm working with great, great people. Johnny Carson was phenomenal to work with. And Letterman, you know, Letterman, we were now peers, you know, in the sense of our age and one time I was on Letterman and the audience was laughing. I said, what are they laughing at? And Dave said, nothing we're doing, you know. <laughs> All right. So this brings us up to 2021 where we've got Steve Martin, who we've already established you'd worked with going back to Three Amigos in 86. I think you might have even met him. You once said before that briefly, but right. um, you worked with him on that. You worked with him on the Father of the Bride films, maybe even... Other we did things. Prince of Egypt. Yes, Prince of Egypt. And he's in Jiminy Glick and Lollawood. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So 2004 for that. Yeah. And then at some point, you guys, this evolved into both a, uh, a good friendship and a recognition that you could tour together, be funny together doing... Right. Mm -hmm. Why Steve Martin versus Chevy Chase versus some of the other funny people you've worked with? What was it that you two... Well... About? You know, it is interesting. You make these movies and sometimes you're in everyone's life for three months in Istanbul and then you never see them right. again, right? But Steve, I certainly made, I thought, you know, I won't lose this guy. He's too interesting. Mm -hmm. But the, the live shows just started. We were asked by the Just for Last Comedy Festival in 2011 if we would close it, just w interview each other. And that was it. And uh, it was successful. And I already had a show, and he had a music show, so we just ended up combining them. Mm -hmm. And at some point, I mean, he had not, he had not, I believe, acted on television in decades, right? In any, if if ever, only SNL. On, right, he had yeah. never been on a TV series. Right, and you obviously had, but. I guess I just wonder this idea. It sounds like he 
maybe independently or or somehow had this thought originally that there's going to be a show about three older guys before it even forget the what became selena gomez right how did it evolve to the point where it's not the three older guys but you and he are talking about it being you two well it was in stages he was steve says that he was at a party years ago at sandy gallons Mm -hmm. and uh sandy said there were three older actors sitting on the couch and said you should do a show about them And Steve thought about it and said, well, that's a good idea because Steve loves true crime, all those, watches them all the time. So we thought about three guys who are solving something in a building. He just mentions this to you after having... No, 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 no. He was just mentioning to himself in his own brain. Okay, okay. And uh, and he thought it was funny that they were at an age where they'll solve a murder, but it has to happen in the building. <laughs> They're not going downtown. They're not traveling. Right, right. And that was it, and it just sat in his brain for a few years. And then he had a lunch with uh, Dan Fogelman and a couple of years ago. I think it was during COVID 2020, and Dan said, do you have any ideas? And Steve said, I had this one idea. And then it just kept evolving into, then John Hoffman got involved. And then it wasn't three older people, it was someone young and... We started shooting uh, in 2020. But the idea that it would be you and Steve, I mean, again. Oh, so Steve phoned me and then told me about it and said, would you be interested in doing this? So do you think Steve was looking to get into TV series acting or that it just occurred to you guys when you're talking about this project that it would like, did he conceive of it for himself and you, or was it? No, I bet. I mean, I don't know this for sure, but I'm kind of know it for sure. I'm sure that it was Dan Fogelman saying to Steve, well, Steve, this, this could be a great show. And, and would you consider being in it? Cause that's Steve had never done a TV series. It's a big announcement. And I think he looked at the idea of it would be fun to work with me and yeah. asked me and I said, sure. And then now it was Selena's name. Well, so that part of the equation is so interesting because I get why you and Steve would look forward to working with each other, feel confident that you can make it work with with your parts. But when this idea of having a young woman introduced to this is raised, was that something that gave oh, you Oh, I that? thought it was a great idea. You did? Right off the bat, I thought, oh, that's that's a great idea. Because there's just inherently so much potential for miss. Uh, well, because I, I get bored, you know, with with the endless. Um, and how old is he? And how old is he? Now that I'm old, you know, <laughs> I never cared about it when I was 25. Right. But so to me, by introducing someone who's 28, it's taking away the age factor. It's this idea that well, you can't be friends with someone who's 28 because mm-hmm. you're 70. That's preposterous, you know. So you're obviously playing Oliver, this broke Broadway producer who's, I guess, once he gets involved with this podcast, hoping that it might bring him back closer to his son. Um, No, I don't think it's about his son. It wasn't about his son. It was just, you know, he's a guy who's like any actor or anyone in showbiz, you go from project to project with your fingers crossed. But he doesn't have any money. He went to his sons to ask for more money. money. And the son said, I can't do it. Okay, so... He's a vet. Were these specific characters, it feels like they fit you guys like gloves. Like the idea, right. you have you have made a specialty over the years, whether it's specific characters you've played or even I think the character of Martin Short that you play when you're playing yourself of, you know, narcissistic, um, right. self-obsessed guys. Mm-hmm. Was this guy going to be that even before you were playing him or did you guys massage the characters to fit your strengths? You know, I, everyone's exploring at the beginning. James Brooks had a story that I've quoted a million times and probably have it completely wrong, but the gist of it was it's, you know, season three, episode two of the Mary Tyler Moore show. And he turns to Stan Daniels, his partner says, I think we figured it out, <laughs> but it takes some time. So, um, but I do think we, played into our relationship and then you know if you improvise a line they they love that there was no one like in the first episode steve is saying well i just think and i say no need to yell (laughs) now that's something i would say to him as a joke right 
that's in the show, right. that kind of thing. And Selena is just spectacular. But when the first day we shot, I had never met her. So I was on the driveway thinking, drive there thinking, I mean, I hope she's great. What did you know about her going into this? Well, I knew about her life and her music, and I'd seen her. I'd actually been doing the Lorne Hang at an SNL when she performed during a big storm and uh, the musical guest. Yeah. And um, and then I, you know, I'd just seen her in the Woody Allen film. So, I, you know, you, you make an effort. Sure. There's sort of a, a curiosity I think you've heard from other interviewers that, and probably fans as well, like, is there any mirror of the characters dynamic with each other with you and Steve and Selena? Is there sort of, uh, you know, generational uh, misunderstandings or things like that? Or are you guys just actually pals? I, I would say we are actually pals. Yeah. I mean, one of her favorite days was reading, um, you know, rap lyrics to us and we're going, what? <laughs> You know, I think it was Cardi B, right? Yeah, it was a uh, WAP. Right. It was WAP, and um, she was just laughing hysterically. Right. And I would say to her, "Well, here's Selena. Here's the thing. I, I I'm trying to figure out what's better. Okay, I'll give you one version. Somewhere over the rainbow way up high, or somewhere over the rainbow way up high, there's a land that I dream of once in a lull. She's just okay. <laughs> Oh, fuck yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so season one drops, and let me just know, it was embraced to the extent that within the first two weeks of the first episode, there's a renewal for season two. Mm -hmm. New York Times review begins, quote, begins, Martin Short gives a master class in Only Murders in the Building. It's not a class in acting or comedy so much as it's a seminar in agelessness and professionalism and in Short's unmatched ability to turn self-absorption into a virtue. You wish he were on screen every moment, close quote. Mm -hmm. Not bad, right? Not terrible, no. Did you, again, were were you confident before you got any audience feedback that you guys and had, had done something special or did you have to get that? Well, I mean, you kind of work with people and you can tell you know there's dinners earlier and you uh, if you're good at kind of creating immediate intimacy with people you know if they're going to be honest with you mm -hmm. there, there's nothing gained in their lying so in the early days we would hear oh my god the studio loves this oh my god they have no notes you know all that stuff which is rare mm -hmm. and then you look at it yourself and go yeah not bad not bad and so you know, you go into, that doesn't mean it's going to be successful, but it certainly means one of the hurdles is over. Totally. And then uh, just the fact that you and Steve both nominated for the Emmy, you had, there were some very funny, I think the New York Times got you guys to talk about the fact that you're <laughs> up against each other yeah. and have fun with that, but come back with season two, you, I mean... Shirley MacLaine wants to be part of season two. I think season three, which we have to look forward to now, was Meryl Streep. Um, Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd. I mean, just when you signed up for this show, I guess in the best case scenario, did you imagine that, you know, it's going to be year ongoing for years with th these kind of people wanting to join your troupe? I mean, this is to me, it seems like it's got to be best case scenario. Well, listen, we've also had Amy Schumer and Sting. Yes, yes. Um, no, it's fantastic. It's no, but you don't really do any of this like that. You don't go, gee, I wonder if this film will make three hundred million dollars, <laughs> and I could win an Oscar. You don't go there. You're just trying to get through the first hurdle. Is it too long? Is it no good? God bless us, we tried. You know, right. And then when it seems to work and people like it and it works on levels that even surprise you, it's very gratifying. I mean, we're sitting here in L.A. right now. The show, I think, does shoot in New York mostly. Mm -hmm. Is it, I mean, imagine, I imagine part of this is that's, you have to pick up your life and go and do something. If you're not having fun doing it when you're, you know, schlepping to New York and doing all that. Like, oh, it, absolutely. I wouldn't at this stage in my life work in a, a show that had horrible vibes and jerks screaming at people. No, right. it wouldn't happen. Right. I don't think it would perceive either. Right. Or Selena. So final question, I guess, just is, um, you know, in the course of an hour, we've 
gone over all the amazing things you have done. Is there anything beyond just enjoying your work that you specifically still have on the bucket list? Are there things that particular goals of yours or you just uh, see where no, I have no bucket list. Yeah. I mean, I just kind of feel that at 73, I would have done them. And maybe there's a reason you shouldn't have done them. <laughs> I mean, in my life, I w I've been asked to direct a, you know, a movie. And I thought, now Steven Spielberg had a little camera when he was nine. That's who should be directing movies. Right. But I was up in my attic, you know, with a gooseneck lamp, because even then I knew I needed lighting and a spoon <laughs> pretending to do a variety hour on NBC in my head. He should be doing that, you mm -hmm. know. So, no, I don't have bucket lists. I would have done them. Right. Well, glad uh, glad you're doing what you do. Thank you so much for my pleasure. doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.